0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and uh, not next to me this time, but on Sandcaster is my friend and colleague, Niklas Sävos. How are you?
1: I'm quite fine. I got some food poisoning yesterday, so that's why I'm not in the office, unfortunately. would, would be the last day before vacation, so would have been would have been nice to meet you and have a glass of wine or, or so on. So a bit sad about that.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, who is our guest today, then?
1: We don't have any guests today, so this would be interesting.
0: Yeah, today is a special episode as we have gotten some questions on what our takeaways are and uh, how this can be applied practically. So it's been 25 episodes and we thought it would be a good moment to discuss these lessons. Uh, What do you think uh, of the journey so far?
1: I think it's been uh, so so interesting to to kick this off and really to have um i mean a new guest uh, every two weeks or so on and um i think it's been um, amazing to to speak with all these thought leaders and to hear their perspectives i mean these are people that you have read about before you have listened to them and now you you have the chance to speak to them and and uh, i mean when you read a book often i, I have a lot of questions and uh, and to get them answered by by the people directly so it's so good how about you
0: yeah in some ways it's really been unreal to have these guests on the podcast and uh, some topics have been quite new for me actually Uh, for example shareholder activism that we talked with um, jeff graham and his book dear chairman about in episode six that is not something that i knew that much about and now we heard and read the whole story about how shareholder activism has evolved over the last century and that was really interesting, I think. And uh, that's something we have been coming back to in other episodes. For example, we talked about that with Patrick Valian in episode 14 and the book Business Adventures and uh, Buffett's salad oil scandal when he bought uh, American Express and so on. And also in the recent episode with uh, Richard Lawrence, who has been been an activist himself, but in a different way. He's more of a fund manager approaching the companies with in a more friendly way. Some of the Uh, those activists have been quite uh, hostile. And another highlight, of course, for me, is really to get in touch with uh, some of you listeners. It's been really nice to both get interaction on Twitter and um, also meet some of you in Stockholm and in Omaha and so on. And that has given me a lot of inspiration and encouragement to, to keep going. So thank you all for the support. And if we go into the lessons, what have you learned from the first 25 episodes?
1: There are a few general takeaways. One takeaway I have is how many connections we're able to do between the episodes. So even though we, we speak to a person who has written something in, in one subject, we make connections with uh, totally different books, which is which is really nice. I think one of the, maybe the most interesting takeaway for me has been, uh, I mean, to really speak with some of these superstars that we have interviewed and uh, they're so down to earth. I mean, I'm I'm a bit, I, I'm not surprised because, I mean, having uh, talked to a lot of people in the, in the investing community, I think many people are like that, but it's just so nice when you really get it confirmed when, when you speak to, to some of these people that are maybe a level above what you'd normally speak to in terms of knowledge and experience.
0: Yeah, and it's very generous of them to share all their insights and also to take the time to come on the podcast so I definitely agree and I mean the finance industry is not known or famous for having a great reputation and there are of course many cases of greed that proves that point and we have talked about that in some episodes like uh, number 12 with Bethany McLean for example who has written the, the great book uh, on the Enron scandal and um, but yeah on the other hand there are so many examples of people who have high integrity and are very generous and kind so they just had this like genuine passion for investing in business and that really shines through and to solve this intellectual challenge like in the most competitive field as Richard Lawrence mentioned in, in episode 25.
1: Yeah, it could be that we get a bit of, bit of a bias from our, our filtering process has been really good I think so I mean before we invite anyone to our podcast we, we know a bit about them we know that they are not like the bad examples of, of finance so it's similar to how you do when you when you research businesses i think um, because i mean you you do some initial digging and yeah throw the idea away if it's uh if you see some um some marks that you don't like so i think uh, i think that's similar similar and we've had guests ranging from business manager uh, investigative journalists money managers and private investors and i i really think um what we would like to show is that there is so much to learn from from different uh, type of uh, people in this business. Um, when you're an investor, I think many investors maybe listen too much to other investors uh, and and not um, yeah and too little to to these uh, like investigative journalists and business managers and and also others like psychologists and so on. And that's what we really really want to show. Uh, I think it's uh, I mean some great investors talks about the benefits of, of cloning. And I think that concept has been a bit overused sometimes because I mean, I I don't, I don't like the idea when you clone a specific uh, stock uh, ID from, from someone you can do that, but then you need to do your own work and get your own conviction. Uh, So you can get an ID from someone, but not, not the conviction. And I think that's, uh, that's powerful. And uh, I think also it helps uh, to not only read pure investment books. And I think um, probably we will expand even further to talk about more diverse subjects in the future. Uh, And um, while it's clear for for our fans that uh, we, uh, yeah, maybe our fans was a bit... Too strong a word. I don't know how many strong fans we have, but we have some. And I'm really appreciative of, of that. And ourselves, we are huge uh, Charlie Munger fans. And we love his concept of having a multidisciplinary thinking and not only have a few tools in, in the toolbox, but many. And that was something we discussed early in the podcast with uh, Jake Taylor in episode two. Uh, and also with uh, Robert Hagstrom in episode 16. And, and also for for example, Daniel Chang, which we have quite an interesting story about uh, what happened with uh, Daniel Chang after after um, interviewing him. So maybe you can take that, Eddie.
0: <laughs> yeah, we noticed on Twitter that uh, Charlie Munger was speaking at a conference uh, and it was on, um, on a link. So he was in his own, own home office and then you could see on his uh, table next to him, there were a couple of books and everyone on Twitter were trying to figure out uh, which books those were. And uh, we we noticed that one of them was uh, Daniel Chang's book, An Investment Thinking Toolbox. And uh, yeah, we just sent an email to him and uh, and the picture, of course, and uh, he woke up and said, now I can die happy. So <laughs> he was really excited about that.
1: Yeah, it was a fun story. And I think you're a bit humble there because you actually influenced Daniel to actually send the book to uh, w- both uh, Warren and, and Charlie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, I mean, we also spoke uh, about uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac in a recent episode in number twenty-three here with uh, Rajiv Agrawal. So it was, it was nice that we have that book uh, covered and included in in the episode list. It's such a broad book. There are so many topics in there, um, but also from other books, it's enough that you only find like one or two sentences, sentences, and that can really change your behavior or your life. So. I mean, that's been one general takeaway from me, from the conversations and from reading the books.
1: And I don't think we're done with Poor Charlie's Almanac. I mean, we didn't discuss uh, the whole book. We discussed parts of it, maybe the, some of the most interesting ones. But I think you could do one episode per chapter, more or less. There's so much uh, knowledge about that. And I myself, I use it as, as like a bed table book that I, I can just, okay, I don't have anything to, to read right now. So I pick up that book. Uh, and read a chapter or read some pages and and that just tilts me in the, the right uh, direction so you can I, I found that as an investor it's hard it's it's easy that you get dragged into these. Uh, uh, I mean what's happening now in the market and so on and then you go go down to to your library and really pick up some of these great books and, and you get tilted in the right direction and start to think more long term and and so on because a lot of the the financial media talks like uh, what's what's going to happen in three to six months or or maybe a year and and that's noise so uh, i think uh, that's hugely beneficial and and poor charlie's almanac is one one of my favorite in that aspect but there are many similar ones i think that you can use for the same
0: yeah and rajiv said he also uses the book in that way he reads like a few like one chapter or a few pages every every other week so that's definitely a good way to use it but some some other people that he knew they read the whole book from cover to cover like once a year so yeah we can definitely come back to that book uh, maybe once a year
1: yeah what do you think about what do you think about uh, like rereading books
0: yeah i mean it's definitely something that is valuable we have discussed that before that if you read read it once you might be in a specific state when you read that so you might ignore some information i mean i've been thinking about that recently now that we're in a bear market that everything that i read when there is information about uh, how to deal with a bear market for example that we spoke to with richard lawrence about and and others as well and in other books now it's more i I think I am in influenced by being in a bear market. I, I take it more seriously. I think more about it. If I would have read this like two years ago or something, I would be less uh, impacted by it.
1: It's just so, I think that's so interesting. And even though we have, we read all these books and we think about these concepts, I mean, you still get humbled by the by the market from time to time. And, and this has been some, yeah, one, one of those experiences in, in my view that, in uh, like last year, most of the investors were too optimistic, and, and that includes me. And, and I thought about the opportunities more than the than the risks. And, and that's uh, I think the important thing is that you realize that, and you you try to learn from it, and then you you try to yeah, you try to get the perspective that you need for, for the current circumstances. So don't think about what what you have lost. Uh, think about what opportunities are ahead, and always think like that. I mean, you're also. I think it's you need to think about if a mistake has been a mistake or not. I mean, you have like uh, you have like this this concept that uh, Taleb talks about alternative histories, and I mean, of course, the the risk in the market was high last year, but also this was this is one scenario that could have happened, and now it happened, and now some of the people that said, yeah, this is gonna happen. Look like heroes and look like, uh, yeah. Those are the ones that people listen to now. But that's one scenario. It could have been another scenario, and then then we would have spoken about completely different things now. So I think it's the important thing is having this uh, like probability distribution in your mind. That I mean, a lot of scenarios can happen, and and you need to position yourself to to come out okay in in. most most of these scenarios
0: and i know sir john templeton has said that the biggest mistake is to not invest at all so speaking about mistakes but how much are you rereading books
1: um i try to i have a few books that i reread quite frequently um, it's just the hard to the hard thing is that there is so much to read and uh, doing this podcast is is about uh, i mean if we took out the the same book time and time again then Yeah, that wouldn't be so interesting, maybe Uh, because it's one thing that I think we'll come back to is that books are really subjective. So I think the important thing is that if you have changed, then you can have a huge, huge benefit of reading a good book that you read before, because now you have, yeah, you have a completely different way of, of looking at things. So I, that's the biggest thing that I often hear, like people said that that book changed uh my trajectory in a in a huge way and then another investor said but no i didn't get anything from that book but it can be a great book but it just it just didn't click for one person and really clicked for for the other and in a way it's like um if if you are if you if you are sick some medicine works um at at one time and uh, for you but not for the other so i i think it's uh It's just uh, so subjective. And I think um, that's one of the reasons why some of our guests have a problem actually recommending books. I think we talked with Jake Jake Taylor about that. That yeah, he has a habit of not recommending books because it's so subjective.
0: I really have a recency bias here because we talk a lot about Richard Lawrence that we have in in the latest episode. Uh, But he was talking about taking slivers of wisdom from from different, different investors like John Neff and so on and uh, putting it all together to his model. Let's hear Richard Lawrence explain it himself.
2: You know, there's a great investor, John Neff. Well, John Neff told me about an equation and how he was looking at the construction of his portfolio. Boom. I, I don't know what he wrote about in his other 290 pages, but those two or three pages I really got.
0: And what Richard Lawrence was talking about is something that I connect with what Sean Iddings was uh, telling us about in our very first episode, to find your own investment style. Let's go back and listen to that.
3: One thing that I think is important to talk about is style. And so when when I say style, I think anybody who wants to get great results in whatever they do, they they have their own style and... So when I when I say style you know like Warren Buffett like he's he's got his own style he's a straight shooter great communicator simple he has his own way of operating and I think a lot of people want to imitate and copy that which is good and you get to learn a lot of important topics by doing that but with any artist they learn from the best they imitate and then they get to a point where they find themselves And they find that internal voice and they meld all these different influences. And I think of it like a big pod of gumbo where you throw in all these great influences as ingredients. And then you get to a point where you just start stirring it together. And then you take a scoop out of it and you get a really unique uh, version of all of those influences, which is yourself or your own style. And that really separates the the greats from the non-greats.
0: This dish, uh, a stew of gumbo. It was funny because we had to try that when we saw it on the menu in Omaha. What did you think about it? <laughs>
1: um, I don't think it's. Uh, it was the best gumbo. Uh, so I mean, it was the first one I tried, but it was a good restaurant. But uh, I just think that, yeah, I don't know, the gumbo wasn't. Uh, it wasn't my favorite. At, on the trip, but I think <laughs> it depends on what you put in it. And I mean, it, it sounded like gumbo, you can put more or less anything in it.
0: So using the metaphor of gumbo, how would you describe your investment style?
1: I think I've evolved over time. I started like a Benjamin Graham type of uh, investor, uh, purely quantitative. Um, I got influenced because that was, that was more or less the first thing I read on investing, I started. I, I mean, I read some Swedish books on investing before, but then, then when I read um, Benjamin Graham, it just uh, yeah made a lot of sense. But after a while, I realized that I couldn't find so many stocks with those characteristics, those low valuations that uh, Benjamin Graham talked about. I mean, when he wrote that book, it was uh, around the time with the Great Depression and there was a lot of opportunities that were, were cheap. And even though, I mean, some investors... Currently, and, and I mean, use this net net approach that you try to buy businesses more or less with that the market value is the same as, as the cash position in the in the business or, or more. And they, it's it's still possible, I think. I mean, if you have a low capital base and so on, you can find opportunities like that, especially in bear markets, which we have now. I just um, I just feel like for me, it's uh, it's in, more interesting to read about businesses itself, to speak with managers, to, I mean, to learn about what role business have in society as a whole, and also to apply all these tools that we talk about, like, okay, what can you learn from, from different subjects and, and use in order to process information better and, and choose which sources to read? And, and I find that, um, yeah, I mean, investing in, in quality companies fits that quite, quite well. Because uh, these quality companies with uh, strong barriers to entries, they have a longer durability often. And I mean, if you look at, for example, we talked with um, Heather Brilliant uh, on uh, on the book, Why, Why Modes Matter. And um, they have this uh, the Morningstar Index of quality companies, and you can see how, how they have outperformed over time. So... It fits with the Charlie Munger's phrase "sit on your ass" investing. If you find great companies, you can sit on your ass and you don't need to do so much. Um, I mean, the, the difficult thing is that sometimes you you may overpay for those businesses, and that was a problem last year, I think, for many investors. Mm-hmm. That uh, I mean, this phrase came up on Twitter: "Never sell." That you just buy businesses and and hold them for the long term and. I would like to do a survey on those investors who, who said that, who have actually hold on to their positions. And if they hold on to their positions, I think many of them think it was a mistake because it, they are, I mean, even though these businesses are not maybe failures in the in the long term, if you're down like 80 to 90%, that's tough. So I, I think valuation matters a lot. And uh, so I would think I, I like this. I mean, quality at, at, at a reasonable price. I think that's uh, something I, I really like. But sometimes I also go in and do, do this kind of deep value stuff situations. So if I find find something that's clearly mispriced, I, I do that. But. It's it's a smaller and smaller part of my portfolio.
0: Yeah, I guess it's not really worth the time to do those small. I,
1: exactly, exactly. It depends on the capital base and so
0: on. Yeah, the hard part is to figure out, well, quality is also hard to define, but definitely what is a reasonable valuation? That's something you can talk about for, for hours. It's the art part.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And uh, the art part and the art of selling was something we we covered a little bit with uh, Richard Lawrence and this quote of you're getting tomorrow's price today that he was talking about was something that you liked as well.
1: Yeah, it really resonated. And I mean, um, it's, um, yeah, I think a lot of investors sh- would have benefited from from reading that last year. But probably most of them wouldn't really do the connection and actually sell because of that. So it's, yeah. How about you?
0: Yeah, my investment style has, has also evolved a lot over the years, starting with trying to find these uh the dividend payers, the, the stable companies, um, and then moving over to more and more high-risk companies, I would say, smaller ones, where you can you're more looking for a catalyst and more special situation, and then tilting towards quality and compounders over the last years. So, but you've been honing your and, and refining your investment style for the last 15 years almost, and uh, I'm on a similar. Uh, trajectory but is there something over the last year during the podcast uh, and everything that we have talked about that has changed your your style in some way
1: i mean in some way i've got influenced by by the concept we spoke about right now about uh, getting tomorrow's price today i think when i I, i've been quite of a i started out as quite a boring investor i I try to i mean only invest in in the ideas that, that really, really made sense. And we had like a, a strong dividend and, and low P and so on. And I think when I moved to RedEye, I mean, we focus on smaller tech and life science companies. And if you find good uh, companies that are small, growing a lot, um, they can be huge winners. And I think I, I got uh, influenced by that uh, in, in the recent year and I maybe, maybe a bit too much at the wrong time. So I think, uh, I think I tilted a bit too far in, in one direction and, and I'm tilting back a bit now. So, um, I think that's not a huge change in, in the philosophy. It's more about, uh, yeah, my, my process and so on. But I think that's, that's been quite interesting and and also it's it's about this i mean even though i've been investing in fi- for 15 years i started after the financial crisis i haven't really been in in uh in a like a, a huge bear market before and we will see what happens now but i think you you have so much to learn from being in bear markets to see how you react um try to think clearly when when everything like when you when you see the like everything just uh yeah, your your portfolio is getting crushed, and I, I I think you just need to stop in that in that time and just think about how what has happened, what what's the current environment like, what can I I mean, what's the best decisions I can do now, and also of course take the lessons from from this. That last last year it felt like you everybody has had this huge. Uh, Uh, time horizon in their investments and to just notice that you can go from like it felt like you had like a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon to now it seems like everybody thinks about the next quarter it's like they're connected to like the the financial media everybody think like okay how how much cash do these businesses have on the balance sheet how much free cash flow do they generate and those are concepts that you should think about always I think they get maybe overemphasized currently um that uh, now it seems like everybody thinks that um that that's the that's the case and, and probably a lot of that is priced in. So you can get a lot of opportunities in the so to speak businesses that that maybe have some problems ahead, but where you feel confident in 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 the management and, and that the business can can start to generate healthy cash flows in the future. I've been thinking a lot about this concept about um, maintenance capex and, and growth capex. So, if a company invests a lot of, a lot in growth activities, it uh, it causes, of course, the earnings to go down uh, because it's not uh, it's just uh, part of the expense uh, line. It's not um, balanced in, in on the balance sheet. So, I think that's a concept that I have with me from before, and I think that's more or less. It seems a bit forgotten at this time that some businesses, it's not a, it's not many businesses, but some businesses have higher um earnings potential and quite in the near to midterm than than what you see. So I think you just need to keep keep um do the work, keep thinking about what's uh, what's like the steady state earnings for a business, what's the what's the peak margins like and, and uh and try to to check as many companies as you can. Because now is now is our opportunity.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating how fast it can go. And for our listeners, this is in the middle of June that we are recording this. So the market might have, might have changed uh, when we release it. Probably. <laughs> in one way or another. But it's funny because I've also, I mean, we've been talking about bear markets. We've been reading about it. But then it's always a little bit different when you actually are in it. And to me, I feel like many people we talk to, they think that, I mean, we are kind of gotten used to that bear markets are very short. It's tough for a short while, and then it's back up again. And people are all already thinking about the next bull market. But uh, like when you read about the 1970s or, or so on, it can really go on for many years. And also when you read about other markets who has been in, in bear markets for, for decades, uh, it's really something, okay, maybe it's not very probabilistic that that will happen, but... There is a chance that there will be an extended bear market and you really have to yeah. have the capacity to suffer through that.
1: Probably one reason is that a lot of investors are quite quite young. They haven't been part of, of this for, for decades. So, um, I mean, if you have one decade of experience, that's been the case. And you think that that will always be the case, but that's why history is so important. And I think history is probably a subject that we will go into more and more. Um Another concept that we discussed uh, that I felt was really interesting about actually doing the work and, and trying to get an edge as an investor is um, driven by what we spoke about with Avner Mandelman. So what's, I mean, how has he influenced your thinking?
0: Well, I, I did know about him for the last five years or so when I was an equity analyst as well. We uh, went through that book, The Sleuth Investor. So I know about the concepts, um, which is really uh, doing the hard work, being a detective and uh, getting out in the real world. But of course, uh, reading the book now and talking to him, re- re-emphasized that it's, I mean, it's not the same thing, sitting behind your desk and reading annual reports or uh, talking to management even. I mean, you have to go out, go out there and really gain an edge. And there is really an edge to gain from talking to competitors, suppliers and other people in, in an industry or, or just on the street so well i haven't been doing that much of the work and i mean he is very under followed i mean he has like 200 followers on his youtube channel and uh, his book has been out for 15 years but not many people know about him so it was really nice to to have that conversation and actually highlight all his all his work Uh, but also for myself i haven't been doing so much of the work it's really a full-time job to do that work but you have been doing a little bit more of it, I
1: think. I've done some, some work. I, I I would like to do more, but I think what you, what you discussed there is so important that, I mean, some of the guests we have, they won't be, I mean, hugely, hugely renowned in the industry and they won't have like, uh, like thousands and thousands of followers on Twitter and so on. But what they have, what what they have to say can, can still be hugely interesting. And it's just this concept about some things haven't really popped yet. I mean, they need to. They haven't got the the uh, interest that maybe they they deserve. Sometimes, so sometimes it's it's of course well deserved. But sometimes you have so much to learn from from people that are are yeah, not uh, not in the limelight, so to speak.
0: So, are there any other specific lessons that you have from the first twenty five episodes?
1: I mean, there are tons. I think going back to again uh, Avner Mandelman and, and gaining physical evidence. I think that's uh, that's been. Uh, one of the I mean it's just sometimes you feel like uh, you don't need to do all the work but then you realize that you actually need to do you need to do something different from others I mean one way is actually to think better think different we have this concept about how you gain uh, an edge you can have like an informational edge to have more information than others and that's part of that you can get through the concept with uh, with Abner Mandelman you actually can just know more about the business what's happening what's what's going on currently and, and so on the other is analytical edge where you actually you read the same information but you just have a different angle on it and that, for that i think it can help a lot to have like this knowledge about uh, history and psychology and so on that we speak about and I also th- feel that uh, the technical or structural edge is a bit underappreciated sometimes. It's just that you can actually gain like quite an easy edge by just understanding, for example, how index funds work. We have had a few of those in Sweden where a company is, uh, is listed on a, on a, yeah, on, on, the, on the big list, so to speak. And you feel like, okay, now it's announced and, and everything. And You have an upcoming date coming in a few months and then more or less, yeah, everything goes on as as normal, nothing happens. And then when we approach like the last few days, you sometimes get a pop of like 10 to 15% and then it goes down after that. And we have seen that pattern on and on. And I think that's just only one pattern, but there are so many of those patterns. And I I think I would, I would, the person I would like to discuss this with maybe more than anyone is is, uh, Jim Simmons. I read this, uh, or the biography of Renaissance, which was not. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think Jim Simmons approved the book, so the author did it on on his own. But I think I think that firm knows about all of these different. I mean, the structural edges. They probably have other edges, behavioral edge, edges as well. But I just think that's underappreciated, and something I would like to discuss with someone who really knows this.
0: Yeah, because they can see if there's a big transaction going on in the market and then they can get ahead in the queue or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, and also yeah, just understand these things with uh, which listings that are upcoming and so on.
0: Yeah, we can see that in their performance.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: So another piece of the puzzle is the people part, and that is something we have in our quality rating. Have you gained any insights on the people side?
1: I think uh, that's one part of the philosophy that maybe has changed lately. And that's just how important people the people are for the business. So I think Richard Lawrence said it best in, in uh, episode 25.
2: I think the businessman made the business. Okay. So yes, we need the business. And then we need to reflect also that that guy had a big part of it. Yeah, sure. He got lucky in some cases and whatnot. But usually you build a big business that's super profitable. Um, you did some things really correctly. Well, I I think they're a little bit joined at the hip. And when you look at our investment philosophy, superior businesses, that's the profitability of the business. That's the cash flow. Uh, Management with integrity and know how to run a public company. That's the management. Discipline valuation. That's the valuation you pay because you can get the best management and the best company. You pay the wrong price, you know, end of story. And then long duration because the more long duration stocks you can get into, the easier your life is. That coming together is what the secret sauce is
1: without the founder you don't have the business and it's just that what comes first is is the founder and if you can realize if a founder is really a thought leader and and uh, with the right strategy and and uh, that will build the right culture if you can do that early then i think that's yeah that's so important for for a business and and i think also speaking with, for example, Rajiv uh, Agrawal on investing in India, is or, or yeah, founder-led businesses is, is key. But not all founder-led businesses are are good ones. Some are not there to serve the the uh, minority shareholders. But to get that right is really key. So Rajiv said that I mean, if you can get the the people behind the business right, I mean, then then you have done a lot of work and. Uh, you get more often you get, get wrong on the people than, than the business. The hard part is of course the understanding if a, if a person is a, is a visionary or a fraud, for example, a concept we discussed with uh, Bethany McLean.
4: The most key character is Jeff Skilling, who was the chief operating officer of Enron, really its creator and its CEO for the last year of its existence. I still find him a fascinating character. I've talked sometimes about this fine line between a visionary and a fraud, where it often is just the outcome that determines how somebody is seen. And I think if Enron had been Tesla and had continued to be able to raise money from the market and hadn't had this crisis of confidence that that suddenly stopped it from being able to get cash from 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 investors from the capital markets. I think Jeff Skilling could have gone down in history as a, as a visionary. One of the businesses he had created was something called Enron Broadband, which essentially was Netflix ahead of ahead of its time. Um, but he he his his really I, I've often thought we all have fatal flaws. I think his fatal flaws was that he couldn't he, he needed success before it had actually come and so he he needed Enron to be a star for for his own ego and so he promised Wall Street um, a certain amount of earnings every quarter and damn Enron was going to deliver.
1: Again the concept of alternative histories I think that's just a hugely important concept that yeah <laughs> sometimes you can just uh yeah you would be seen as a as a fraud but you have also been a visionary and we we just think binary. We think either fraud or visionary. It's not in the middle, and and sometimes the, the truth is more in the middle. I don't want to like uh, backskilling because I think in the end the company the company failed, and, and I think uh, management did things that they shouldn't have done. It's just that when you're when you're like when a when a person is put in a corner and don't have any way to run, more or less, then we as humans do strange things. And uh, yeah, I think that's something you, when you read psychology, that's just something that you realize that that it's not, I mean, we are hugely influenced by that.
0: Yeah. And also I I would have been swayed in that moment if I was uh, like an analyst for, for Enron. I think it's easy to be because he was working so hard and he was, he seemed so passionate but then you have to ask yourself, okay, what is his incentive? What is the motivation? What is really driving him? And I think that is very hard to determine because you kind of have to know the person and understand what is his main incentive. But that is something we have, we have tried to cover in the quality rating we have on the people section. So let's hear our CEO Björn Falén speak about the people aspect in Eyes quality rating
3: from episode 17. To answer the key question, does the business have great people behind it? We answer questions in seven subcategories, business passion, execution capability, capital allocation, investor communication, executive compensation, ownership strength, and board leadership. All these subcategories are assessed on five checks of quantitative and, and qualitative questions and each check is allocated one point in in, in the question uh, in in the question if the question can be answered with a yes and the total number of these points makes up it makes up each sub subcategory score on a scale that ranges from zero to, to five rounded up to the nearest whole number
1: another Specific lesson uh, concerns uh, focus and we we had Pete Davis on the podcast quite early speaking about like being committed to things to be dedicated to to certain things that that you want to support and we also spoke with Jillian about uh, about different mentors. What's, uh, what's your take on, on those things that we spoke about with them? I mean, have that influenced you in any way that, that you uh, have you appreci- started to appreciate uh, having focus and passion on, on everything you do? Or, I mean, how do you think about that?
0: I mean, the podcast is a good example of something that we are really passionate about. And uh, we have to focus a lot to, like, when you read the book. And uh, before, when I read a book, maybe I was, I put more focus into it now because now I, I know that I will ask questions and so on. So that, uh, that's a positive effect of that. But uh, I think in the commitment and dedication part that Pete Davis has written about, that has also influenced me on a personal level as well. I mean, I'm thinking in many situations, I'm thinking, okay, but if I do this commitment, it will be for a long time. And there might be something at the end of that, I mean, I'm I'm more long-term in that way. You see uh, something you start doing now, but it also has to do with, like we've been reading a lot about compounding and so on and talking about that concept. And I think that fits very well into that commitment and and dedication as well. If you are really going for something, you will do these small changes every day and that will take you somewhere. And uh, there is, I think many people are very focused on what is happening here and now. And that is, of course, good, but they don't think about the consequences. And then also, of course, the consequences of consequences and so on. So those are some concepts that I have, uh, I have with me all the time. Uh, How how do you feel about those?
1: No, I agree. I I really agree. I don't have, I don't have anything important to add. So to quote, (laughs) nothing to add. Yeah, to quote Munger. I've got nothing to add uh we've also i mean some i mean what's been good is that we have one good part about this podcast project as a whole is that we have become really good friends and uh, we discuss all these concepts like um all the time more or less that how can we improve what can we do better um both about podcast and also about other subjects and of course we have read a lot of bo- books the last uh the last year and I mean, I was a huge reader before. Um, but, uh, as you say, I mean, now the problem I thought before the podcast was that I, I was going to be pushed into reading books that I didn't want to read, that didn't, I mean, that I didn't like at the time. So I, I don't think that's been a problem. I think, um, I think I've got a lot out of many books that, that we have read or mostly most all of them, I would say.
0: And you also work as an equity analyst, so you can have that. Real world example on the side.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really the concept I want to discuss a bit more. That you need some kind of healthy mix between reading books and and also practice in the real world. So if you only read books, it's hard to get ideas for investments. So I think you need to have some um, some some um, knowledge about books. You need to do to read books, but you also need to read ten case or. Uh, listen to managers and to speak to people in the business and and uh, as we say i mean do the physical work that that mandelman speaks about actually go out and talk to customers to suppliers and uh, try to arrange visits to to factories and so on uh, and i think uh, we we actually yeah we sent a question to Buffett about that about i mean how How much to put in into each bucket? And unfortunately, we, we didn't get a response, but I think we have more or less the answer ourselves. I mean, it's, you don't need to say 20% of that and 80% of that. It's, I mean, if, if you, you don't need so many IDs as an investor in order to, to do fine. So I think you need just need to figure this out on your own that. Uh, you read in order to to improve your, your wisdom and so on. You can make better decisions. But of course, you need to, to analyze the, the world and, and businesses to to actually be able to strike on, on some of those opportunities that comes up. And then you need to be ready. You need to have the knowledge. It's hard to, when you can go into a bear market as as this, if you don't have any knowledge about companies, you will start to think about, you will start to discount the near future too much you won't see the opportunities in the long term. And then the risk is that you, you won't be able to pull the trigger, I think. So you need to have a list of companies that you know, and then you're able to, to uh, strike quicker, I think.
0: Yeah. But our guess is that Buffett is not reading that many books these days. He's more focused on his lovely newspapers. And then he's, of course, reading a lot about different companies.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But do you think investors are reading enough books?
1: I think most of them are not. As I said before, this, it's easy if you only read 10Ks, for example, you, you don't get other perspectives on things that you may need. I mean, you get specific knowledge about companies and at least for some, maybe for some, it comes, it comes naturally that you think about all these other ideas, but I think it's like, um, you i think you improve your your intuition and and also as i mean your internal checklist to think about so i think you can process information quicker and you can understand businesses quicker and better if you read a lot of books so I, I don't think necessarily investors may maybe appreciate how much you can gain from reading books in 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 your investment process journey so to speak uh, so i i think uh, many would benefit of at least reading um, a few books every year, and I think maybe most investors then only read investment books, and I think they could gain a lot from reading other books as well.
0: Yeah, and also reading more company material and other sources like uh, competitors' uh, reports and so on as well, and not spend time looking at the stock screen.
1: Excellent, absolutely. I think some p- probably most people put too much time into checking the stock prices and. And that's not, I mean, when people say like, okay, how much do investors put into into their work? I think many of those hours that they say they put into that is actually managing, like managing the portfolio or actually just staring at, at stock prices.
0: And being on Twitter and so on.
1: Yeah, exactly. And some of that... Some of that can be good. I mean, for Twitter, for example. But yeah, definitely. Much, much of it is noise, as well.
0: But I really liked the concept that uh, Jack Taylor was talking about in our episode, with him, the second episode.
5: You feel like your job is, as an investor is to sort of stay informed, but you know, if if it is so much noise to to actually capture the nugget of information, then I think uh, that. It, you may be at odds with with success. Now, where I think what can help is um, Jim Chanos has this analogy that he calls like the information onion. And you look at the very core of the onion where there's the most truth. And that is the what I would like the SEC filings themselves. And that's really what the company has to tell you. Um, I would also put then like good books into that where there's a very high information density to the amount of content that you have to consume now, as we move outside of the onion to the next layer, that is more like the company's uh press releases the investor relations decks um, com- like the conference calls, and those are all the things that the, the management wants to tell you, not necessarily has to but wants to um, another layer and that that then the equivalent might be for um, you know reading a, a good write up of a of an investment idea perhaps uh, and then the next layer out would be the like sell side research. And those are like, we're, you know, we want you to take this action. So here we're trying to give you some, some information to make you do what we want you to do. Um, and that may be more like a blog post or something, uh, equivalent. And then finally on the outer layer, you get into like social media and rumors and, you know, just really just like sort of the candy. Uh, it feels good. It tastes good. Um, Tweets, you know, things like that, but they're not. There's not much caloric density to it. There's no real meat on the bone there. Um, and so, where are you spending your time, and how? What's your diet of your information? Uh, and so, the more that you can spend at that core of the onion, um, eating the most nutritious bites, I think the I think that helps add to your patience a little bit, and it helps you have a better understanding of the world as well, as opposed to interpreting. The the bait like the very core information through someone else's lens, right? So if if you're reading someone else's write up about it, but you didn't read the source material, you're getting all of their biases baked in on top of it.
0: So another way to filter information is to use a stock screener. What do you think about that?
1: And I mean, some some screening tools are are better than others, and um, I think I find that in in bear markets screening. Maybe it's more important than than uh, otherwise. I think uh, because you have this, we will come in. I think we'll discuss the psychology part of it. But just uh, when you get like this mass psychosis that you can get in in really really bad markets, we're probably not in in that one yet currently. But you get a lot of mispricing, and when you get a lot of mispricing, you can you can find out things with with a screener that you can't find in a call market. I think. Because then you need to, you, have, you need to have a different perspective on things. I mean, people people don't stay rational all the time, and then you can you can actually just benefit from from uh, looking at financials and and, and and logic. So I think I think it's it's easier by that time.
0: Yeah, speaking about psychology, one question that we have asked most of our guests is this: What is your common bias and uh, the mental traps that they fall? victim for when they are investing so what are your takeaways from from that
1: i mean um, daniel shang has had this wonderful phrasing of that that i think was was really interesting that um and he, he writes about this in his book investment thinking toolbox um and he covered the 11 most important mental models for investors and what he says is that confirmation bias seems to be the most frequent and most dangerous and as he as he describes it circle of competence is is a one-time test whether you understand it or not but confirmation bias really keeps haunting you in every decision in every part of your process you can get fooled by confirming what you already know so to speak so yeah he has he has this list of the seven deadly sins of confirmation confirmation bias, which I think was fantastic.
6: When it comes to investing, it doesn't really help that other people confirm what you think are, is true. So the framework with the uh, seven deadly sins uh, is basically the process uh, from start to end, uh, where you start with search, where one actively st- looks for data and information in order to confirm one's initial view, uh, which obviously uh, can lead to very bad decisions. Uh, secondly, you will have preference. So even if uh, contradicting evidence is found and exists, uh, we tend to prefer the evidence that supports our initial belief so that you don't have this cognitive dissonance. Um, Thirdly, you have the recollection part where uh, somehow it's actually easier to remember the information that supports one's initial belief. It's easier to forget uh, arguments and facts that doesn't support it. Uh, Fourthly, you would have interpretation. So even if I would present, if I'm presented with uh, the same set of data as maybe you two. Uh, we would interpret it differently. I would probably interpret a little bit closer to what I believe in uh, in order to confirm what I believe in. And it's not because I want that. It just happens naturally. Uh, and you would interpret in a different way. A little bit at least. Um, then you have framing. So um, you could... Be using mistaken beliefs to misunderstand what's actually happening in a situation, uh, which is a little bit different to interpretation, but still quite similar. Uh, discarding is the sixth sin here, uh, which is about that you explain away or discrediting information that actually does not fit with the belief. So even if you are presented fact, you might think that it's not a fact. It, it's. It's fake news, as a famous guy like to say. (laughs) Uh, And the last one is testing. Uh, This is something that I struggle with quite often. So it's kind of like the ostrich putting uh, the head into the sand. So when you are... Maybe there's a little part of you thinking that maybe I'm actually not right here. Maybe I should look up some more facts. Maybe I should run this analysis again, there's a much more uh, powerful part of the brain saying, no, let's not do that. Because if you do that, there's a risk that you're wrong. So just don't uh, take a look at it again. Uh, so when it comes to investing, uh, the important part over time, at least, is to uh, have a good output and uh, being right in the analysis, which hopefully leads to a, a good output, So even if one would fall victim for the deadly sins, over time, uh, it probably means that one has less cognitive dissonance and maybe feels better about one's decisions on a day-to-day basis by not challenging them. But I am a strong believer in that that would result in worse results uh, over time.
0: When we have asked many of the other uh, guests as well, I feel like we have gotten this answer quite many times confirmation yeah. and consistency bias is a really tricky one and you get fooled by it over and over again
1: and I agree I mean from if I would answer that question I think confirmation bias would come quite high up up on the list I think over optimism maybe that's just because of the situation we are in now but I just feel that that's it's just it's huge social proof is also huge uh, there are a few of them that are more important than others i think
0: and if we go into the book section that's something we also have in every episode we ask what has inspired them or if they can recommend something what have you learned from that section
1: um, yeah it's it's a bit uh, difficult i mean some some of some of them have, have been a bit reluctant to recommend books but most of them have have had a few recommendations and i just feel that I I feel the same about that problem of recommending books. I think, I think that, uh, it's, it's so subjective. And I think what's, what's, what I would recommend our listeners to do would be to check out the books and actually maybe try to, to read the first chapter or so on that you can often do on Amazon, for example, and read, read maybe, um, yeah, try to understand what the author is trying to do. And if you, if you, If you feel like the book seems to be of of the right quality and you know that, okay, I will probably read this in the future, then I would probably recommend buying it. And what I do is that when I, when I get a new book, I more or less always skim it and try to like read the table of contents and and the, the preface and, and, um, and also I go quite quickly to the conclusion. I mean I try to understand what, what do the author wants to do? What what wants what the author, what do the author try to like convince me of here? And it's quite easy to see if they use like logic and, and facts when they come up to the conclusion. And then of course how they how they write the conclusion. How what's the conclusion of the book? And and then I think about will this really I mean. Is it necessary for me to like take five hours out of my life to read this currently? Or do I have another book that is more interesting for me now that I'm... I mean, talking about passion, it's just if I'm passionate about a concept currently, I want to understand it. Then it's, it's really an easy and light read. It can be a quite complex topic, but I think that helps a lot. I mean, don't just pick up a book and read it from cover to cover. And then in the end, you say, ah, this was not so interesting. You have lost quite a lot of time. And and, I mean, it's good to think about opportunity costs there, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one book can provide so much value, but it also takes a lot of time to read it. So make sure that it's worth your time. And do you have any other advice or a specific approach when you're reading books?
1: I mean, I would recommend this book um, that is called How to Read a Book by mortimer adler a philosopher um i think i think that's it's so good i mean it's i think everybody should should learn the concepts in that book when they go to school because for me it was like going back to school and really understanding okay how should i read a book it's just you you learn that okay you should just read books cover to cover more or less and you don't need to do that i mean you what 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 is it about i mean why do you read is it is it for actually gaining wisdom or is it just to i mean to cross somewhere that you've read another book and i think that's just that's the most important takeaway for me on that
0: and how do you read do you read physical or digital or
1: it's a mix sometimes i read uh, on the kindle so if I'm just so, I mean, I'm passionate about the subject. I want to learn it now. I, I, I've I, done some work on, on understanding if a, if a book is good enough or not. Then I buy it on Kindle because I get it, I mean, immediately and I can just start reading it. But I, I prefer physical books because it's good to write in them and so on. And I really like, I mean, I think you have some lessons about actually how how to write in books in order to... To gain more knowledge that's something that's that's uh, Adler speaks about as well that, that you need to write and, and think about the concepts all the time but I think you have a process that is is quite interesting yeah
0: it's not something that I have learned it just came naturally but I I use highlighters to mark what I think is most important of course and then I have an an ink pen that I just write in the margin when I think something is interesting it's usually just one word or two words but that will make it so easy for me to get when I go through the book again I will see instantly okay this is this topic or or something like that and uh, i usually make a star when there is like a big insight for me or something that i'm like okay this is a good concept Uh, so it's also easy to find and then i also have a third pen which is a red one and uh, with that one i make hearts in the margin when i read like a sentence or a quote or something that i really love and i want to keep that one so and then of course the book always have blank pages in the end so Sometimes I write my questions or my takeaways or reflections there. So yeah, you can use the book in that way. But I'm sure there are many, many ways to to do that. And uh, it would be interesting to hear uh, if any of you listeners want to like tell how you are using it or can give us some advice. It's always interesting. So we look forward to reading many more books and discussing them with authors and investors. And uh, if you have suggestions of people we should talk to or what to read or... Uh, want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can do that on Twitter. It's IB underscore Red Eye. And you can also find me and Niklas on LinkedIn, of course, if you want to connect. And we would be super grateful if you would give us a review in your podcast player and help us spread the knowledge with Investing by the Books podcast. Is there something more you want to add?
1: I, I just want to reemphasize what, what Ellie said. I mean, I think we become better if we get feedback of or- of uh, what we're doing good and what we're doing bad, especially what we're doing bad. So about the Buffett concept, give us the bad news first, or possibly only give us the bad news because we will get the good, good news anyway.
0: Yeah, we only did 25 episodes, so I'm, I'm hoping we can do many, many more.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is a long term project and there's so many great books out there that we want to cover. So hopefully we can continue for years.
0: And next up, episode 26, that will be out in two weeks. Uh, It comes a conversation with Andrew Wagner from Wagner Road Capital Management. And Andrew is the author of The Economics of Online Gaming. And this will be our first economics book on the podcast. Uh, and I think it has many relevant aspects for investors and it doesn't require any gaming skills. We are not gamers ourselves. So we really enjoyed it anyway. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Reddi. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore and email us at IB.podcast at RedEye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback. So please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.